Welcome to Love Songs. We are in a journey through the Song of Solomon, where today we're going to talk just the two of us. And hopefully we can make it. Uh, if we try. If we try. Uh, and so as we go into this, realize that this is not easy for us, but it's enjoyable because uh, it's, it's one of these things that, uh, that, that God's taught us some things. But more than that, is it's just incredible to get into the Song of Solomon and to see I even prayed this with Lori last night. I said, why did, why did we take 29 years of our marriage before we ever studied the Song of Solomon together? So we're late to the game. You're earlier, hopefully, to the game. And hopefully you can get in on this earlier because it's an incredible resource. It's not a love story in a narrative form where you walk through the seasons of life so much, as some people have proposed it to be. It is love poetry. And it's poetry, and it's going to be here, and it's going to be there. It's going to be all over the page. There's 20 different poems that make up the Song of Solomon. So it's, there's so much to it. We last week studied two of them. Today we're going to look at a third poem. And I'm not going to break it apart week by week. But this poem, this, uh, this, this collection of poems, is believed to become, uh, throughout Jewish history, a marriage festival time where they shared together at marriage time for seven days. So you can see how maybe this unpacks and unfolds uh, throughout the time. Now, last week we talked about attraction. And attraction is obviously one of those things that knowing what's valuable, what to see in somebody, what to be attracted, what to realize that things are going to change. And if physical attraction is as deep as your attraction goes, it is wake-up call time, okay? Because that's going to change. That physical attraction, that euphoria, it'll last between 15 months and 15 years. I know there's a big span of time there, but let me break it down. 15 months or to 30 months, up to 30 months, is what psychologists will tell us that euphoria, that heart stop beating, love song writing, sweaty palms kind of love, that's all it's going to last. It's about 30 months at max, maybe 15 months. So if that's all you have in your attraction tool belt, then you're not going to go very far, okay? Or you might make it to 15 years. But what happens at 15 years is you wake up one morning, I can't tell you what morning that's going to be, you're going to wake up. You're going to look at the person in the bed next to you and go, wow, you have changed. You know, you don't look like the girl that I walked down or the guy that I walked down the aisle with. You don't look like the same person. There's more to you to love. And there's... There's extra, not that I say that or anything. Yeah, but watch your words, babe. Uh, Fifteen years into it, you kind of wake up and you go, "Okay, this is this is is this what I got now?" But you know, think about it like this. I'm not offended by that at no. all. No, I'm just telling. If that's all you have, okay. Uh, so the now you're messing me up here. So the. Um, <laughs> The, you remember the Facebook app, or excuse me, the app that came out, it came out for like three days and it was like the hottest thing on the market called Face App. So I, I actually did that, downloaded that until I realized I was giving the Russians all my information. Uh, and, but I downloaded it and I, and I got the photo of me. I want to see what I look like younger, see how, how accurate it was. So I went back, because we're going to go from attraction to nurturing today, okay? We're going to talk about nurturing, and a nurturing uh, a- attitude is realizing that I've got to nurture a relationship along, but what, what, what happened is, is I said, okay, app, tell me what I looked like 20 years ago, and this is what I looked like 20 years ago, according to that app. I look like my second-born son. My son looks like that. It's a bit scary whenever you think, uh, my firstborn son, secondborn child, uh, it's a bit scary to look at that and go, oh my gosh, you're so accurate in how you, how you portrayed me. Then I projected out <laughs> a little bit, 20 more years, and this is what I came up looking like. Ooh, man, she better love me for more than my looks because my looks are going to the pot. There's just more shape and defining there. To more love. So love. I am not putting my like face app thing up there and you're not going to see it either. Like you're just going to have to deal with it when you get it. Like uh, amen. that's how that's going to go down. But here's the thing. So I can see he's talking about that attraction, that passion. It was enough to get you started. But it is not enough to keep you going. This fragile, passionate marriage that is brand new now comes together. And this is what has to exist beyond it. They have to now go into a time of construction and transformation that takes place by nurturing, listen, over a life. 
time. And the craziness of it all is like, I was like opposites really kind of attracted. Like there were some things about him that were opposite that I absolutely loved. And now it's those opposite things that actually like drive me insane. Right? You know what I'm saying? And so what you begin to realize is that like that God in his design has creatively and on purpose hardwired you to be different. Like he has different chromosomes. He has different anatomy. He has different feelings. He has different ways of thinking and no offense, but he has like different sounds and smells and like they contradict with mine. Yes. All right. Yes, yes. yes. But it's the diversity. And I love this, this polar opposite of genders and the genders. Listen, listen, I know there's a lot of gender dysphoria and confusion out there, but listen, we need to honor manhood. We need to honor womanhood and we need to appreciate the differences and realize that God brings these opposites together. And again, sometimes the, the magnets get turned and they go like this. But then you have to force them back around and nurture that back togetherness. And it's going to be an ongoing nurturing work of a relationship. And that's the beauty and the miracle of it all. Because if you look at it like this, it's, it's different sometimes. We're as different as dogs and cats. Okay? Any cat lovers in the room? We had one last hour. Our okay. daughter. There's one back here. Thank you, Christy. All right. Uh, so there's a few cat lovers in here. And uh, so, ladies, I'm sorry if I offend you, but you're like a cat, okay? And so I want to take a test here, and you tell me if this is not true. Uh, so they do what they want. They rarely listen to you. They are totally unpredictable. They wail when they are not happy. <laughs> When they want to play, they, uh, when you want to play, they want to be alone. And when you want to be alone, they want to play. They expect you to cater to their every whim. They're moody and they can drive you nuts and cost you an arm and a leg. And they leave hair everywhere. Can I get a witness, men? All right, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, fair, fair enough, but let's turn the table a little bit. How many of you are dog fans in here? Uh, you're already outnumbered. Okay, so is it a dog or is it a man? You tell me. They lie around all day sprawled out on the most comfortable piece of furniture in the house. <laughs> they can hear a package of food opening half a block away, but they can't hear you even when you're in the same room. They leave their toys everywhere. They growl when they're not happy. When you want to play, they want to play. When you want to be left alone, they want to play. <laughs> they're great at begging. They will love you forever if you will just feed them and rub their tummies. <laughs> they do disgusting things with their mouth and then try to give you a kiss. They can look dumb and lovable all at the same time. That's right. That's right. The miracle of love. Wait, wait, wait. They wanted to applaud and you interrupted. Go yeah. ahead, lady. Applaud. The battle of the sexes today. The miracle. That's, it really is. Marriage is a miracle. It's what Paul said when he talked about it being a mystery. I think it's the way God designed it. It's, it's a man and a woman coming together. And again, what attracted you to that person can get the fires going, but it won't keep it going right. if you don't nurture it. So if you have your Bibles and so forth, open the second chapter of the Song of Solomon. If you have your little inserts, your little journal Bibles, then you could just open that up. It should be pretty easy to find. We're going to talk about... The Shulamite lady is going to speak today. That's that's who we believe is Solomon's wife here, whom, whom he's writing in. And I realize, you know, next week we're going to deal with basically all the time is going to be Solomon speaking. So we're kind of getting voices here. Last week we got male and female voices going parallel. This time we're just dealing with the Shulamite woman. And the Shulamite lady is going to speak here. And, and as she speaks in the, in the beginning... In the beginning uh, of chapter, or at the end of chapter 2, where we'll be today, is where she speaks about how the man nurtured her, okay? The nurturing ways of the man. 
And then we'll flip the tide and we'll let the woman speak of her nurturing ways. Because it's not a one-off. It's not, I nurture her, but she doesn't nurture me. We nurture each other. And if we're not in this together, we're in it alone. Okay, And, and it's and not it, a bait and switch. That's right. It, we, we've got to be in this both nurturing one another. And I know that that will increase uh, that will increase affection, that will increase intimacy. And the guys are going, yeah, yeah, anything I'm thinking right now, paying attention. I hope my wife's paying attention because I need more physical embrace, more intimacy more often. But the women are in here thinking, yeah, well, I hope my husband's paying attention, careful, close attention to the detailed words that Solomon is thinking through in order to write down and communicate to his wife or her to read and everybody else to know that he only loves her. Yeah. In, in poetry of that, guys, we don't have a chance unless you're that kind of guy uh, and are able to write poetry. I cannot. So, so <laughs> I can write good cards. You do. Good Absolutely. Cards, yes. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to in rapid fire, pretty rapid fire today. So you're going to need to take notes. You've got plenty of space in your journal Bibles if you've got those. But we want to give you, based on the nurturing uh, that that Solomon assumed the role that he assumed, how he nurtured her, and then also how the Shulamite woman nurtures him back and forth. Now, here's what I want to put the disclaimer on. It's not a, this is what he does and this is what she does. Every one of us can do all of this, okay? It's not a gender-specific on this part. We need to both be doing this given whatever situation that we're in. So these are five actions of nurturing love because it's not going to happen in a passive Form, okay? It's got to happen in active form. So actions that you're going to take, actions that I'm going to take, that we're going to take, okay? Number one is pursue each other through the seasons of life. First of all, whatever season you're in, whether it be spring, summer, winter, fall, let you put your own little definitions of that, you need to take the role of active pursuing the other person. Now, again, let's go to, let's go to our text in chapter Two, beginning in verse 8, where he starts the third poem here, he says, actually, she says this, the voice of my beloved. Now, that becomes the nickname that she gives him. That's the words that she refers to her hubby or her, her man or whatever you call your man or whatever. Hers was my beloved. She says it again and again in this chapter. She says it five times in seven verses. You can circle them as they go. Behold, he comes leaping on the mountains, founding uh, over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Now, I have to believe this, guys. I think you're right. You agree with me. She didn't mean stag. She meant stud. So feel free to go ahead in the journal Bibles, put stud beside that, because I think that's what she was trying that's to say. That's your best translation that's of Hebrew best translation ever. of Hebrew. So when you get this phrase in the descriptions and the animals and the, and, the, and the plant life that they bring and how she's describing her man, and then you come to verse 10 and following, you find her quoting back, what he said to her. So don't miss the, 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 the changes in, in persons in the story here. She's still speaking, but she's saying this. My beloved speaks and says to me. What does he speak and say to me? Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Now notice this. For behold, the winter is past. I don't know what season you're in personally, what season your relationship is in, what season your marriage is in, if you're in a marriage season. Uh, but I will say this, nobody doubts what winter is. It's harsh, it's dark, it's cold, it's depressing at times. It, it, it can be cold in the house, cold in the bed, cold in the communication, cold in every way imaginable. But what is he saying to his beloved? He is saying the winter is past. She, he is speaking positive words over their relationship. And he is saying this to them. And again, we don't know the story. We don't know the backstory. We don't know what prompted that. But it's just important for all of us to realize, embrace whatever place you are in right now, whatever season you're in right now, that you pursue the other in that season. 
You don't wait for them to pursue you. You pursue them. H. Norman Wright, who's probably the guru of marriage writing, whenever I was going through my uh, uh, counseling minor, uh, it said this, in the seasons of marriage, couples of all ages will discover the different stages of marriage that that they will encounter and how to prepare for the challenges that they never thought about during their courtship period. See, when we're in that courtship period, we think this is priceless. This is the man. This is the woman. They are. We will never have the problems that I had in my last marriage. And hopefully not. They'll never have the problems of broken hearts and the broken promises. Hopefully not. But the proclivity and the potential is absolutely there. What we have to do is we have to know the value of pursuing and never, ever become passive in our pursuit. Now notice what happens in verse 10. Because it repeats itself almost verbatim in verse 13. My beloved, now notice what she says, speaks and says. Don't miss that. In the Hebrew language, the way you would emphasize something or reemphasize something is you would repeat it multiple times. In Isaiah chapter 6, it says, God is holy, holy, holy. Emphasizing again, He is holy, okay? Because they didn't have any other way to bold cap it, underscore it, anything like that, put it in italic print. So what they would do is they just repeat it. So what she does is she repeats the same thing twice. She says, He speaks and He says. So she is emphasizing this here, that I'm hearing this. It's communicating to me. I am leaning in and I am paying attention. Now what is he saying? What is he hearing? She is hearing this. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. And he does the same thing again in verse 13. Notice that. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Literally, she bookends in quotations what he says. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Basically, in a harsh, hard season of winter, and maybe you're in that season, the best thing you can do is rise up, man or woman, or both of y'all, and say, I'm pursuing you. I love you. You're my beautiful one. Let us arise. Let us come away. Let us get aside. Let us recalibrate. Let us realign. Let us get back on the same page. I am here. I am not going anywhere. I am committed to you. I am not wavering one bit. I don't know about you, but our marriage in 29 years, we've had winter seasons. And then we've had winter seasons after another winter season. And then a winter season after another winter season. And I looked and scanned back and just in thoughts over over our marital life and thinking through that, those seasons of, again, springs and falls and summers and winters and, and things like that. And there's probably two, though, that are pillars. And I verified this with Lori and asked her, can I share this? And she said, yes. Uh, and she agreed. In the past 10 years, there's probably been two seasons. She had one in particular. I had one in particular. Ten years ago, she had one that was a very personal one deep, side of, deep down inside of her. Four years ago, I had a very deep, dark winter season that was deep down inside of me. And the thing that I can remember personally speaking into this, I, I tried to, I didn't have the answers to what she was going through. I just tried to be present in what she was going through and tried to be a safe place for her to process. And you know what she did for me in my four-year-ago winter? She didn't hesitate, waver, one iota. She was there. And she, in her own way, was saying, come away. Let's be safe. Let's be together. Leads me to number two. They dovetail really well together. And that is to create a safe and secure place to rest. If you go find rest in your home, where are you going to find it? In your marriage, if you don't find rest there, create it. It's not going to happen on its own. You've got to nurture this into reality. But notice in verse 14, she, again, is now speaking, and she is referring back to what he said to her. Oh, my dove. He calls her a bird. Now, last week he called her a horse, so he's getting better. (laughs) He calls her a dove. A dove is a beautiful, elegant, white bird that would fly. 
And it, dove represents, represents back to Noah's time. So it's, he, he chose a, a bird of promise. He told, chose a bird of purity. And he calls her this, this beautiful dove. And then he says this, In the clefts of the rock and in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice. And if that wasn't good enough to hear it once, let's say it again, again for emphasis. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. I want you to hear what the man is communicating to his wife. He is saying, I not only see your beauty and want your body, I hear your voice and I want to be a safe place where you can talk, where you can emote, where you can process. And I want to be the cleft of the rock. I'm calling you away, but I'm calling you away as a dove to the cleft of the rock. Now, again, you've got to go to Israel to kind of picture this, but it's very rocky and on the, on the edge of the desert, and you've got all these rocks and crevices that are, that are tucked away. It's where David ran for, from Saul for his life and ran to the cleft of the rock. And so, men, men, listen, be a safe place that your wife can process can emote, can feel, can think out loud. And women, be the cave instead of the man cave that your husband has or wants. Be the cave that he wants to go to as his safe place to get away. Moses hid his face in the cleft of the rock to prevent the glory of God that was so great and vast that would have killed him if he had seen God face to face. The Bible even says that. He hid his face in the cleft of the rock because it was safe and secure. Obadiah, in chapter 1, verse 3, talks about the cleft of the rock is where people would build their homes and they would live there because it was safe away from the enemy. I want Lori, and I can tell you, I can tell you this, Lori is in a season right now that's not a winter season, maybe more of a fall season that as she has intentionally, prayerfully stepped down from her, her job and it's created some, and I've asked her if I could share this, has created her own little disequilibrium, her own little reflection, her own little process that she's going through. Yeah, yeah, there's financial questions and unknowns. Yeah, there's future questions and unknowns. And yeah, there's personal identity questions and unknowns. And you know what? I don't have all the answers, but I am going to communicate this to her. That we're okay. It is safe. You are secure. We're okay. Let's do this together. And that's what I want her to hear more than anything. That the McDaniel Rock is solid. Amen. That'll preach. All right, so we're going to uh, switch a little bit from looking at how he is pursuing her to now how she is pursuing him. And as we kind of dive into saying in the same passage of scripture, the poetry and the words are going to get a little bit more intimate. And I know that at times that like having this conversation in church, it can make us feel uncomfortable. I can assure you this, that the Bible is not prudish and God is not embarrassed concerning sexuality. I read this week, I shared it with Mike, um, one scholar who said it this way, the Bible talks about consummation and passion and seduction and rape and incest and polygamy and homosexuality and adultery and monogamy and sex after the age of 90. And that's all in the book of Genesis. Like, that's just the first book of the Bible. So as we kind of like dive in and even next week as Mike gets a little spicier with it, can, can we just set this as the standard, as a, as a life principle, that we let the word of God not the world, create a healthy view regarding sexuality. And that's, that's got to be just, we've got to own that church, our followers of Jesus. And parents. Because it's all being unraveled before our eyes. So let me give you the third action to take in nurturing this relationship. Here's the third one. Delight exclusively and freely in one another. So let's jump into chapter 2, starting at verse 16, and we're going to read a couple of verses here. My beloved, that's where she calls him my beloved again, my beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee 
Turn, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stud, if you're Mike's translation. In mine, it says stag, but I crossed it out and wrote in stud. Be like a gazelle or young stag on the cleft of the mountains. So let's break apart this poetry for a moment and let your adult mind and maturity kind of fill in some of the blanks here. She says here, she says, he's grazing among the lilies in verse 16. Well, what are the lilies? When you go up to verse 1 in chapter 2, she says this, I am the lily of the valley. And I want you to notice in verse 8 that Mike just read, or excuse me, in verse 9 that Mike just read, that he is gazing. But now in verse 16 where we just read, what is he doing? He is now grazing. In verse 8, Mike read a few moments ago, he was leaping over the mountains. But now, in verse 17, he is on the mountains. He is on the cleft. In some versions, it says this. It says the Mount of Bether, which simply just means a division of mountains, which gives you an anatomical clue to where he is hanging out. Amen. <laughs> Appropriate. Mm-hmm. Verse 17. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, In other words, this poetry is an invitation to hang out all night long. Till the sun rises, the shadow goes away. Babe, it is you and it is me. And he is delighted. He's like a gazelle in a pasture, completely vulnerable, not afraid of any sudden attack from an enemy. He finds love and pleasure and he is nurtured and she knows it. And she's into it, and she is delighted. God designed marriage and sexual intimacy in that order. He designed it for your pleasure. Mm-hmm. Have you ever considered that God perhaps is delighted when he sees his creation in action? That he is delighted that you are delighted. It's almost like this, and this will probably maybe damper in your mind if it goes there, but let it go there. Um, If you're married, the next time you're together, realize this, that that is an act of worship. That's right. And before she kind of gives this intimate picture to what's going on, she introduces it with some words you're going to hear as confident and resolute. You go back up to the beginning of 16. She says, my beloved, my beloved, he is mine and I am his. In other words, he, he is a part of me and I am a part of him. And together we are one flesh. Listen, wives, Husbands, do not let your spouse question whether or not that you are exclusively delighted in them. Give them no reason to ask. My beloved, he is mine, but am I hers or his? Do not, like, let them question. Women, you know this? Women, men believe that they are more happy with you than you are with them. Men Don't let your wife question who it is that you're dreaming about or thinking about. Let her be able to say with confidence and be able to say resolute, my beloved, he is mine and I am his. In 1 Corinthians chapter 17, uh, beginning in verse 4, it says this. It says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does. In other words, I'm his. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. He is mine. So do not deprive one another except for perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to a time of prayer. When I found out that I was pregnant with our second child, I remember where I was standing, and I remember my thought when I found out I was pregnant. I thought, how did that happen? (laughs) 
like, I was thinking back, like it had been weeks in our marriage that we had been together. And it wasn't because we were devoting ourselves to prayer. Okay. (laughs) It was like a lot of marriages where you begin to be crazy and busy and you begin juggling jobs. And he was doing full-time school and we had a new church and we had a newborn other child and we were ministering and we were meeting and leading and encouraging and teaching and speaking and giving and parenting and arguing and visiting and exercising and fellowshipping and planning and mowing and cooking and cleaning and working and studying and writing and balancing. And you wonder why when the partner comes to bed at night, they roll over and die. And, and die. <laughs> There's no love making in that paragraph. They're exhausted. And what we began to realize, and I began to realize, like we were together in bed, and yet we were so far apart. Physical proximity does not necessarily equal intimacy. And the love and the delight that we had for each other seemed to be hijacked. And we had to learn a new way to be intentional, not just being in love, but being intentional in learning to love. Let me just tenderly address also something in this room. When you think about the action of delighting exclusively in that one another, and I know that we have marriages in here that like when you, if you would add that list, there would be other things that you would put in there that you might not want to even say out loud. Like we've had adultery into our marriage. We've had a realization of an addiction to pornography. We've got, we're dealing with the after effects of an emotional affair. And I don't want to lighten any of that just by condensing it down to just a few sentences. But I do want you to hear us say, that you are not a slave to sin. And you are not held captive by shame. And what we would want to know is this, is, okay, so what are you doing about it today? Like, is there total confession? Is there repentance? Are you seeking counseling? Is there active forgiveness? Meaning, listen, no, it's not a one-time event that happens, but it's this ongoing process. We have dealt with so many couples that have dealt with things like this, this pain, and we've seen the division. And yet, at the same time, we have also seen couples that have invited God into the process, dealing with that pain, have found beautiful healing and restoration. Let's go on to number four, fourth action. Develop a soul love intimacy. Now, as we read these next four verses, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, I want you to notice these words that she keeps repeating as she goes searching for him. On my bed at night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. He's not there. I will rise now and go into the city, into the streets, into the square. I will seek him, second time, whom my soul loves. I sought him. But I found him not. The watchmen found me, and as they went about into the city, have you seen the one whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him, and I would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who had conceived me. The Shulamite woman is laying in bed awake and she's wondering, like, where is he? Like, is he caught up at work? Did he get caught up gaming with his friends? She doesn't know where he is, but she goes looking for him, listen, with one intent, with the intention of bringing him to bed. The thing is, is like, some people read this and they say, well, she woke up and she was anxious, she was afraid, so she's kind of going, you know, in this neediness, chasing after him. And when I read this, I don't see that at all. She keeps calling him this one whom my soul loves. What I see is strength. Women, you are the glory of God. Created by his design as a woman in his image, and it is to be celebrated. You are strong. Not because he asked you to be his wife. You are strong because you have been adopted as a child of God. And so in strength, you can pursue him. Yes, even on occasion with the intention of bringing him to bed. But men, I want you to see something here in this story. That as this woman is going out on this pursuit of you, that she's taking risk. 
Like she is putting herself in a vulnerable position. She's going out alone at night in a city that is obviously dangerous because there are watchmen roaming the street. She even bumps into one of them, has a conversation searching for her soul love. And she is in a vulnerable position. She is putting her soul out there. And you need to know that women feel like when they're putting their soul out there, that it's more vulnerable than having sex. When she reveals her heart to you, she is making love to you. She pursues him. I don't know where she finds him. But when she does, in verse 4, it says, When I found him, I held him and would not let him go. A few years ago, Mike referred to it, this kind of winter time in his life. It was a weak place where he was flirting with quitting. He was entertaining voices of shame continually. And for the first time in our 24-year marriage at the time, I saw his fragile soul and the depth of what that looked like. And I knew then that he didn't need, you know, questions from me. He didn't need to process verbally what he needed to know. That in all of him that is completely exposed, that he is fully known and he is fully loved by me. That he is, without question, my soul love. She calls him my soul love. And I don't believe that this was conceived simply just because of physical passion. Soul intimacy is conceived through physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual intercourse. And when I say the word intercourse, it has an incredibly intimate under tone with it. When you look it up in the dictionary, there's three definitions, and the first two have nothing to do with physical interaction. The very first one is this, is that intercourse is communication between individuals. The second one says it's an interchange of thoughts and feelings, and then the third says that it's about sexual relations. To a guy, this idea of like, you know what, I want some of that soul love, but it sounds like an awful lot of work to be able to get it. <laughs> and to a woman, she's like, I want some of that soul love, but it just sounds like wishful thinking. But let me tell you this, wishful thinking and hoping that it's going to happen is not going to create this kind of soul love. It doesn't happen by accident, and it doesn't pray, happen by you just praying, hey, God, give us some of that soul love. Like he's going to show up like Santa Claus on Christmas morning and deliver you a gift pack, you know, wrapped package of some soul intimacy. It's nurtured. It's nurtured. It has to be nurtured. And so it takes time, it takes construction, and it takes nurture, it takes vulnerability and trust in order to be able to maintain it. Brene Brown says this way, vulnerability involves uncertainty and risk and emotional exposure. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love. The good news is, is that within your spouse already exists this desire to be fully known and fully loved. It's just your job now to cultivate it and nurture it. Women, I want to say this very clearly. We don't understand this person that we are supposed to nurture. And soul love cannot exist for him without intimacy. Physical intimacy cements him to you in a way where he feels now that he can be fully and emotionally vulnerable with you, where he can express self-doubt and still feel loved. Men, you don't understand your wife, how you cannot have soul, she cannot have soul love without emotional intercourse. She loves you with her body because you have loved her with your soul and isn't it good? Like we hear it, we think, this is so complicated. And God looks at it and he says, "Mm, this is beautiful. Because what it requires is it requires two people who are givers. Not one who is a taker and one who is a giver. Not two and both of them who are takers. But both of them have to be givers. There's one more action that we want to give you today from this passage. And as you study it yourself, um, you may see other ways that they nurtured each other especially throughout the rest of the the, the chapters together as we continue our our journey. But this one, literally, we almost developed an entire message off of it because it's that important. So jot it down. Protect your marriage against all predators. Protect your marriage against all predators. 
And there are many. And they, comes in, and they come in so many different shapes and sizes. But nurturing healthy love is being responsive to needs, which is a lot of what we've talked about so far, while being preventative to the threats. Getting out in front and recognizing this is a threat. I've got to deal with this. This is out there. And calling it what it is and really owning what that, what that, that, that potential threat is. Now, what he does in a kind of an odd, kind of one-off, kind of a drop it right in the middle of the text. You don't even know why it's there. It's confused a lot of scholars. But I think it's, if you just let it flow, I think you can hear the cautionary uh, call out in here. And in verse 15, he just says this, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. When you study like these little foxes, like foxes are sly. They're stealthy. They come out under the cover of night. And what they want to do is they want to take the seen fruit off the blossoms. But you know what else they do, these little foxes? They burrow underneath the ground, destroying the root system of the entire vineyard. And what he's saying here is like, look, you've got to protect this. She says this, like, go catch the foxes for us. This isn't an individual kind of thing. This is something that you both have to be aware that you are after, that you are capturing and destroying these little foxes that want to destroy any kind of growth or bloom taking place. And that could be a thought. It could be an action. It could be a habit. It could be a lifestyle. It could be something that you brought in from your your upbringing. There's so many foxes. There's 101 foxes out there that could destroy. And Satan doesn't care which one it is. He doesn't care. Just one fox is all it takes. And if that one fox is unaddressed, then guess what? It will spoil the vineyard. So here's a homework assignment. I said every week you're going to get a homework assignment, whether you're single or you're married. Are you ready for it? Number one, this week, if you're single, your homework assignment is to identify personal foxes inside of you. Personal foxes inside of you that are destroying relationships, have destroyed relationships in the past, have hindered relationships from going to the depths that they need to go, uh, whatever the case may be. If that is you... Now, again, if you're single, again, that means you've been married and you're... I can tell you about all the foxes of that loser. Uh, You know, no, you're not focusing on them. You're focusing on your little foxes, okay? So identify them. If you're married, here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want you as a couple to do this together. So Lori and I did this. She wrote down three little foxes. I wrote down uh, two or three. We worked on it together and we kind of massaged it down into five. Five foxes that we've identified over the past 29 years that we've had to uh, see, arrest, capture, and kill. Capture and kill. First of all, you got to see it, though. If you don't see it, you'll never be able to capture it. You capture it, and you got to kill it, okay? So whatever it is for you. What we're going to do, just as samples, we're going to get up here in front of the bright lights and everything and tell you our foxes, all right, that we've wrestled with for the past five, over the past 24 years. 29 years? 29 years, almost. 28 and a half. It so you're, like 24. You're good, babe. Don't worry. Okay, so... Um, so here they are, real quick, rapid fire. Jot them down if you want to. There, there are foxes. You can talk about us when you go for lunch or, or something. Like that. <laughs> One, conflicts. This is the way we would describe our conflicts. You have to have a winner and a loser. Or can you have a winner and a winner? Our, my, my philosophy is you have to have a winner and a loser. And I'm going to win. All right? <laughs> that, that's just the way it is. It's, it's kind of like I, I, I... And the thing is about our arguments for a lot of the years... And it started this way. Literally, we had our first argument on our honeymoon. And so it just Shake. kind of started there. And, uh, and it went that way for a number. It went that way for a long time until I had to realize that it's not a winner-loser. It is a winner-winner. It's, it's like we've got to get it together to where we're both coming away from a conflict, realizing I'm good, you're good, we're good, and we're moving on. Because what would happen is we wouldn't become hysterical as much as we would become historical. And that means basically we'd have an argument and that a year later in this new fresh argument, we would talk about the argument from a year ago. And Nobody would, in here and could would get drug into this argument and then we would drag that into the next argument because we never knew how to resolve conflict to a win-win. 
So that's number one. Okay, number two that we identified were wounds, which means you've got them and you carry them around as baggage, which means you've got to unpack the baggage. But what we didn't realize when we stood at the altar and said, you know, I do, I promise to cherish love and everything. Like we didn't include in our vows, like, you know, I, Lori McDaniel, you know, a sinner with a past history and brokenness. Take you, Mike McDaniel, a sinner with a history and, you know, past brokenness. And we're going to come together. Not at all. Like we came to this marriage clueless that we had any wounds or bags that were sealed up. And it began over some counseling Mm -hmm. when a counselor would identify some of those things from his past, some of those things from my past. And then even then still our posture was a little bit like, yeah, well, I've kind of dealt with that. Or yeah, well, that's just the way I am. Until we learned that it was those places and those wounds and that brokenness that were causing some of the conflict, that were rearing its ugly head in anger, that was withholding in sexual intimacy, or whatever it might look like in your marriage. And when we finally learn to get honest, like I told Mike, like something in my past, like we'd been married for 20 years and I'd never told him. When we begin to get honest in our marriage concerning our brokenness and our wounds, it became a place of healing. And instead of running from them, it became vulnerability here. And we began to love more tenderly and stronger in them. And nobody prepared me for the conversation around wounds. Hmm. Nobody. And so that was brand new, and it opened up, not Pandora's box, it opened up a new level of freedom. And one of those was sexual expectations. That was number, number three, is no matter how schooled you are, you're both lacked sexual smarts. Okay, I was schooled with porn magazines, locker room conversations, and ex- trial and experiment with girls. That was the level of my sexual experience and knowledge. And now I go into marriage. Man, was I dumb. I thought I had all this experience. I thought I had all this knowledge. And that was what I carried into our marriage. Well, that was a bunch of junk, a bunch of trash. And I had to unpack that. That had to be unpacked out of my life. And learning that and learning her needs in the whole encounter and my needs in the whole encounter was revolutionary in our relationship. And I said this last week. I'll say it again this week. I may even say it next week. Communication is the best lubrication to love. I promise you on that one. All right, number four. And it's going to sound like almost like nothing, but that's just the problem. All right, here it is. Sweating the small stuff. Like little things lead to big disagreements. Those things that your spouse does that annoy the flipping heck out of you. And it's not necessarily, like you have a conversation, it's not that they're necessarily wrong. They're just different than yours. We were, we were laughing about this last night, talking about we had scheduled time to be intentional, you know, in our relationship, to have a date. So we got into the car and we're driving through the neighborhood. And all of a sudden, this thing surfaces that he thought one way and I thought the other way. And guarantee it, there was neither one of us was wrong. We just were different. And neither one of us were going to compromise on our way. So it began to elevate and it began to escalate. And so by the time we got a mile and a half to the on-ramp and the highway, the only thing that we could both agree with was this date was over cheap night i have to say that it was really a way to save money if you know you're not going to go anywhere with it you might as well end it well and i can tell you too that there was no hanging out in the cleft of the mountains that no, night no. either so touche but here's the thing sorry like i like it was yeah, so easy yeah. like bob okay but here's the thing about these little differences that become big things is they're just annoyances. And you're going to change him and his little idiosyncrasies or even his opinion about something. What you have to do is you have to change your posture of being annoyed and really just accept the fact that it really doesn't matter. That's right. It, to say choose your battles is, is, is probably overstated, but it really is. I mean, there's little things that constantly are annoying. It's not that big of a deal. Number five, and we're finished. But listen carefully. When you must be heard before hearing. That was a stance, a posture that both of us have. You must be heard before hearing. Having a sharp tongue, but dull ears. 
It's like, well, if you would just listen, if you would just hear me, quit interrupting me. And yet we're interrupting each other all the way through the, the, the conversation. And it's like, well, just listen to me. And, and that right there created something in us that we've, we've had to like stop. Okay, breathe deep, close your, close your mouth, open your ears, listen to the heart of what's going on. And listening is not always fun because I've got great one-liners I can come back with. But listening is the right thing to do. We're told to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Today, I've asked you to begin writing out your foxes. What are are yours? Um, You know, there's a psalm that I want us to read together. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Read it with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, any foxes in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Wherever you're at right now in that journey, don't feel like you have to fix yourself, though you must own your role. It is going to the Lord God of the universe and say, God, I need you to search me. And if you say that's a fox in my life, I'm going to call it a fox. I'm not going to call it a dog and try to domesticate it. It's a fox, and I'm going to deal with it. You and your spirit, I need you to deal. Lead me in the way everlasting. Where are you at? Where are the foxes of your life? Would you bow your heads with me? I ask you to open up yourself for a time of deep dive into your heart, your home, your life, and assess what is holding me back. Is it lack of a relationship with Jesus? Is it lack of any connectedness with God? Am I just going through the motions? We're going to have a time where we're going to, the band's going to sing over us. We're going to, we're going to, sing with them. It'd be a time where you can say, God, I'm opening up my heart. Lord, show me right now. And, and maybe you want to go and pray with somebody. We're going to have deacons. We're going to have pastors. They're going to be on the landing. They're going to be across the front. Anybody you want to pray, go to find someone. And she, you know, you can tell them you're fox. This is the fox that I'm dealing with. You can say, I, I can't tell you that right now, but would you just pray for me? Father God, know our hearts. Don't let us hide. Let us be blind. Help us to be free here and now. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand together as we worship.